for a year before we even discussed it. I prayed about it as I'm sure the, all the other elders did. It was two years between the leaving of one elder and the ordination of two additional elders. And then after a year, we discussed it briefly and we prayed about it for several months. And then finally, in two meetings, we discussed God's plan that we believed He had for this church. We exercised extreme care, knowing that those who are called to lead will have a stricter judgment, knowing that those who are called to lead, who are called to guard and care for souls, someday will give an account for their leadership, as the writer of the Hebrews tells us. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of chapter 5 of the book of 1 Timothy. At the beginning of the week, we looked at the way the church should handle widows. As Paul continues into verse 16 of this chapter, he now turns his attention to the matter of how elders of the church are to be treated. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy as he begins by giving us a quick recap of the book of 1 Timothy as a whole. Now, we've seen so far, before we read our text, how the epistle unfolds. There are three major sections to this very first pastoral epistle. The very first section, found in chapters 1 through 3, deals with the church and its members. Chapter 1, if you remember, deals with the pastor that the pastor is to lead the membership through the Word of God, unlike the false teachers of Paul's day and our day, who lead according to the dictates of their own heart, according to the thoughts of man, we are to lead according to the Word of God. In chapter 2, he very clearly expresses how that leadership works itself out in its membership as it relates to men and women. We saw the role that men are to take as they lead in prayer, and we saw the role that they are to take as they are God's men to open and teach and preach the Word of God in a mixed congregation. And then in chapter 3, he gives us some of those qualifications for those who would serve as overseers and elders. That's the church and its members. When we come to the fourth chapter, we come to the church and its minister. And this is really a chapter of Scripture I suppose that every pulpit committee ought to have memorized. Because if they want to find a good servant of Christ Jesus, then they need to know what the qualifications are. And he lists three, if you remember. He pointed out that the good pastor will preach the word, the good pastor will practice the word, and the good pastor will progress in his knowledge and in use of the word of God. Then when we come to chapters 5 and 6, where we find ourselves today, he deals with the church in its ministry. And he gives Timothy some very explicit instruction on how he is to minister to every group found in a local congregation. First, he dealt with the older men, the older women, the younger men, the younger women in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And then beginning in 5.3 all the way through 16, he gives us one of the most extensive expositions on how we should deal with our parents and our grandparents, and specifically as it relates to widows and what role the church would have. Then he goes on where we will begin this morning in 5.17, and he addresses elders and how elders are to 
in essence, monitor themselves and how the church at large should treat elders. Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, he deals with slaves. And there are many practical applications for us today who live here in the 21st century. And then he'll finish chapter 6 with dealing with the poor and then finally with the rich. Now, with that said and that context given, let's read chapter 5, beginning now in verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Now, so much of the ministry deals with handling people correctly. As a matter of fact, most of the men that I know who've had great difficulty in the ministry have had difficulty in dealing with people. And I believe it's probably one of the chief causes why the average congregation in America can't grow beyond 75 or 100 people. And quite often, a pastor will become so frustrated in dealing with people in the church, he feels the solution is to move on. But what he discovers is the same problems in a different set of faces. And so unless we understand how to manage God's people and how God's church is to operate, well, we'll sputter and spin our wheels and we'll never progress as God intended. That's why Paul is writing this pastoral epistle. You know, I have some 18 books on my shelf that deal with church management and church growth and surveyed them once again this week, only be reminded that virtually none of them deal with church growth and church management from the pastoral epistles. So much of what we're doing today is rooted in secular thought on how we ought to market the church. But Paul writes, Timothy, so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. And so group by group, he instructs Timothy how to deal with older men, older women, young men, young women, widows, elders, slaves, masters, rich and poor. Now this morning, we want to focus on two groups that we are called to minister in the church. First, we want to consider the pastoral care of elders as it's addressed in verses 17 through 25. I want to tell you, I've met a lot of good men, a lot of good men of God who have been greatly abused by bad churches. And sometimes those churches are bad because their mindset is worldly then coming from this book. And so we need to hear, brethren, today what God says. Notice how he opens this section. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Now, this verse indicates that there are two principal functions that elders are to play in the church. 
Now, it is true that there are some churches who use this verse primarily to argue that there are two kinds of elders rather than simply two functions that elders have. Those typically in some of our Reformed churches, some of our Presbyterian churches, and even in some Bible churches, distinguish between ruling and teaching elders. Calvin writes in his commentary, From this passage it may be inferred that there are two kinds of presbyter. Well, I could not disagree with him more. I don't think that there are two distinct kinds of presbyters or elders in the church. There's one kind, but within that kind, there are various functions that an elder may make. Now, every elder, as you read 2 Timothy, even the writer to the Hebrews, where he speaks of those elders who guard your soul, that's all of us. All elders are involved in a general sense in ruling. They're involved in the general administration and the care for God's church. However, while all elders are involved in ruling, not all elders are pointedly involved in the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. And that's the distinction that Paul is making here. Now, it is true, if a man is to serve as an elder, he needs to be able to teach. He needs to, in Paul's words to Titus, be sound in doctrine. Because that's a mark of a mature Christian. A mature Christian ought to be able to take the Word of God and open it up and answer Bible questions and with soundness reflect God's viewpoint in a particular subject. And if a man can't do that, he's really not qualified to be an elder. But while all elders are to be able to do that, not all elders are gifted and called by God to be able to teach the Word of God. Some elders have the gift of pastor-teacher. They often fill the slot that we call today the senior pastor. But what I want you to see this morning in Paul's instructions to Timothy and about the care of elders are, is that care as it comes in three specific realms. The recognition of elders, the correction that at times an elder is to have, and finally the ordination of elders. First, the recognition of elders. Notice, if you will, verse 17. Let the elders who rule be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Now, he speaks of honoring an elder. I know today in the church, because there's been so much scandal, so much compromise, so much rebellion in the pastorate, that many people have no respect for those men that are called of God. But look, if he's a man of God truly converted, doing what God has called him to do, God commands you to honor him. But the honor here, as we've already noted in this chapter, has a dual meaning. He speaks not just of the respect that the office is to be given, but what he calls here double honor. We saw this word used in that fashion when Paul addressed widows. He said, honor those who are widows indeed. That there are some widows in the church who are so qualified that the church ought to financially care for them. And that's really what Paul has in mind here. That some elders are not only to receive respect because of the office they're in, but they are to receive double honor. And so our word today, honorarium. Sometimes the office potentially warrants a salary. And I say potentially because it's not absolutely required by God. Notice again, he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. It's a consideration that the church should give. It's not a definite command. 
Now, in our particular fellowship, we have seven elders, three that are compensated, four which are not. But this consideration of double honor should especially be given, Paul said, to those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And to justify that, he quotes two passages of Scripture. The reason in verse 18, for or because the Scripture teaches it. The Scripture says... You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. That's Deuteronomy 25.4. And the laborer is worthy of his wages. That's Luke 10.7. And so from this verse in Deuteronomy, he pictures an ox to an elder. Now, what an interesting comparison, an ox and an elder. Now, God has compassion on animals. If you've read the Word of God, you know that. Read the end of Jonah. God had compassion on Nineveh, among other things, not because of simply the children who didn't know the difference between their left and their right hand, but also because of all the animals in that place. But God uh, cares not just for oxen. Now, He cares for oxen, and He reminds us in the law that if you have an ox who's out there working and threshing, you don't muzzle him. He's worthy of his work. Let him stoop down and eat and chew some of those oats. Well, likewise, God is making an analogy here. If that's true of an oxen who is worthy of laboring for what he does in threshing, it's all the more true of those who labor over the word of God. Paul echoed the same truth when he wrote the Corinthians. He said, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses. And he quotes the same verse. You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God's not concerned about oxen, is he? Well, sure he is, but more than oxen. Or is he speaking altogether for our own sake? Yes, of course, for our sake it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher ought to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we should reap material things from you? So also the Lord directed that those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Now, it's true. There are some denominations. I guess they think they're super spiritual. They believe that a pastor should not be compensated. He should simply preach the word of God for the joy of preaching it. Well, God knows that most pastors are not in the ministry for the money. But nonetheless, God is very clear that those who are specifically called and gifted of God to preach and teach are worthy of double honor. Now, let me just say parenthetically here for a moment. It's interesting if you look back here in verse 18, he tells us that the scripture says, and then he quotes both Moses and Luke, really Moses and the Lord Jesus himself. He's quoting Moses in the law there found in the book of Deuteronomy, and he equates what Moses wrote with what Luke wrote. And that's significant as we understand the canonicity of scripture. Because Luke was not written by an apostle. You know Luke was not one of the apostles chosen and specially selected by the Lord. Certainly a disciple, not an apostle. Yet he wrote a book of the New Testament, and God calls what he wrote Scripture. Why? Because he had apostolic authority to write that book, such that what he wrote, not as an apostle, but under apostolic designation, it's equated with what Moses wrote. And so these words are equal. Now, incidentally, while we're on the subject, have you ever thought about comparing a pastor to a threshing ox or a hardworking farmer? Now, that's not really a bad analogy if you understand what a pastor is supposed to do and if a pastor really does it. 
He has already mentioned in verse 17 of these pastors who work hard. And he uses a specific Greek word, kapiao, and it refers to someone who sweats, who toils, who uh, expels a lot of energy and persistence at what he is doing. And what an appropriate choice of words to apply to a pastor because it's hard work. Now, maybe not in the precise same way physically, but it is spiritually. Now, I'll tell you, on occasion, I have the chance to do some physical labor in my backyard. And recently, I spent about 10 hours cutting down some trees and moving some dirt. But I want to tell you, the end of that 10 hours, I was more refreshed than I was after being in the Scripture for 10 hours as I am every Friday. There's something, if you're doing what God has called you to do as a pastor, to preach and teach the Word of God, to really wrestle with it, that you rightly divide it, that you don't dishonor what God has said. And as you enter into that realm, in the realm of spiritual battle, as you do it, I want to tell you there are times when I am more exhausted than I am having spent 10 hours at physical labor. And so Paul's analogy is beautiful here. He's describing the hard toil that the true man of God goes through. It's not a cushy job, not if you really understand rightly what a pastor does. But in addition to their recognition, I also want you to notice what he teaches us concerning their correction, the correction of elders. He takes up this issue beginning in verse 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of His chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Now, he unfolds for us in these verses three dimensions as how the discipline or correction of an elder should take place. First, it ought to be done precisely. He's moving from the good minister who deserves better pay to bad ministers who deserve proper discipline. And the situation in view is that of a complaint, that of an accusation of some elder who's living in some kind of public sin. He's not dealing with, you know, you don't like the way your pastor dresses or you don't like his style of preaching or whatever. That's not the kind of thing an elder is corrected on. He's dealing here with an elder who is living in sin. And he tells him very clearly how he, Timothy, should respond in such a situation. Verse 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Now, this is good instruction to a senior pastor, certainly to a board of elders, but also to a whole congregation. Because I've seen good men in the ministry ruined because they've not heeded this advice. I think of one pastor in particular who was accused of something by a woman in the fellowship, and people assumed that her credibility and integrity was proper, and they bought into it, only to find out after the man's reputation had been virtually destroyed in the community that it was a lie. I know another situation where an elder in a church where I was an elder needed to de- indeed be publicly rebuked because he was living in public sin that brought disgrace to God's church. But God is very specific here. You don't just listen to any accusation against an elder. Somebody accuses an elder, you just listen to it. I want to tell you, you better be careful. God says with two or three witnesses, such an accusation is to be backed up. It's no small thing to accuse one of God's men. Now, Paul is drawing this principle. The Holy Spirit gives it to him out of the Old Testament law. In Deuteronomy 19, as he deals with the people of Israel, he says a single witness 
shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. In very like fashion, when God deals with the subject of capital punishment, he says on the evidence of two or two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. When God was spelling out some of the guidelines for capital punishment and for disciplining his people, he said it must be conclusive evidence for it to take place. Now, what Paul is dealing with in 1 Timothy 5 obviously is not a public trial. He's dealing with a preliminary hearing, I suppose you could call it, where an elder has been accused of living in open sin. And of course, the same treatment that is accorded the other members of the church should be accorded an elder. The Lord Jesus, when he spoke on the subject of church discipline, was very specific. He said, if your brother is in sin, if he's caught up in some kind of trespass, he said, you go and you reprove him in private. If he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Now, Solomon tells us that the simpleton, the naive, believes everything he hears. And if you believe everything you hear about some of God's men, you're a simpleton, Proverbs says. God is very clear, under no uncertain terms, is an accusation against one of God's men to be held unless there are two or three witnesses to confirm it. Just as a Jewish judge was not to execute a prisoner, so neither are you to believe an accusation against one of God's men. Look, no one is more subject to the attack of the devil than a true man of God. A true man of God many times will come under slander and unjust criticism because the devil wants to ruin him. If the devil can come into this fellowship and stir up one or two people who will begin to plant some seeds about your pastor or some other elder in this church, that they're not good men, they're not men of integrity, and you simply believe it, he's won a victory. Because now the pastor, the man of God, doesn't have the credibility as he opens the Word of God because you've believed the foolish lie of the devil. Now, if it's justified, believe it. But make sure you follow the guidelines that God specifically lays out here. Don't listen unless there are two or three witnesses. Otherwise, it's sheer gossip, and that person is living in rebellion. Now, there's a third but much neglected instruction as it relates to elders. The correction is to be precise, but secondly, I should say, the correction is to be public. Look at verse 20. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. Now, this verse reminds me that if the safeguard of verse 19 had been properly carried out and it was true, then then the rebuke is to be public. When you have two or three witnesses, as prescribed in verse 19, then verse 20 must be carried out because public sin, public disgrace of God's church deserves a public rebuke. And he's speaking here of these who continue in sin. This is a person who's unrepentant. This is a person who's persisted in sin. And in the case required, it requires a public rebuke. And he says that this should happen. Why? That they also, that is the rest of the congregation, may be fearful of sinning. You know, in recent years, we've seen some political leaders in our country who have perjured themselves under oath, but one standard has been given to them, an entirely different standard for the rest of our people. 
One who's released with no problem whatsoever, not even charge others who go to prison for it. And sometimes in the church, we're guilty of doing the same thing the world does. When it comes to a pastor, we think, but he's the man who led me to Christ. He's the one who baptized me. He's the one who nurtured me and helped me to grow. And, and we think that there's a different standard when it comes to a man of God, and there's not. If a pastor is caught up in public sin, it deserves a public rebuke. That the rest might be fearful of sinning. That we understand that there's no partiality with God, which brings me to the third principle. It must be administered precisely publicly, but then it must be administered without partiality. What's implied in verse 20 is spelled out here in verse 21. I solemnly charge you and the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of His chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Now, these are very solemn terms in which Paul issues these commands. He wants the church to give serious consideration to the fairness that is to take place when God's injunctions are carried out. He's reminding Timothy that this is done in the presence of God, in the presence of the Son, and the presence of God's holy elect angels. In other words, he's saying, Timothy, all of heaven is watching you as you administer discipline to God's elders. So you better not do it unfairly. You better make sure that there are two or three witnesses. You better make sure it's done precisely. But I want to tell you, Timothy, if it's done precisely, then you better do it. Because if you can back it up, you better not back down because all of heaven is making sure that you do precisely what I want you to do. There is to be no bias, no partiality. You see those two terms first? Without bias. It's the Greek word pra krimatos. Pra, we get our word pre before, literally before judgment. He's saying, look at Timothy. Don't make a decision before you have all the facts. Don't jump the gun. Get the facts first. Then he mentions, and he uses another Greek word for partiality. The word speaks about having an inclination towards something. His point is when you discipline an elder, make sure it's done in fairness. Lay aside all likes or dislikes because the worst sin is favoritism and the essential virtue is impartiality. So having dealt with the recognition of an elder and the discipline of an elder, he moves now in verse 22 to the ordination of elders. Notice, do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. Now here, clearly, he mentions the laying on of hands, which we've already seen in this epistle, as in 2 Timothy, is a reference to the ordination of an elder. Just a few weeks ago, we had two men on this platform, and we laid hands on them. What were we doing? As elders, we were setting them apart. We were recognizing that they were God's men, that publicly they were to receive God's approval, God's blessing, God's respect because they had been set apart by God to serve in the office of elder. But he's very clear from this context that the best precaution against scandal and having to publicly correct an elder after he's ordained and the best protection against bringing such disrepute on God's church is to do it carefully before they're ordained. For a year before we even discussed it. I prayed about it, as I'm sure the, all the other elders did. It was two years between the leaving of one elder and the ordination of two additional elders. And then after a year, we discussed it briefly, and we prayed about it for several months. And then finally, in two meetings, we discussed 
God's plan that we believed he had for this church. We exercised extreme care, knowing that those who are called to lead will have a stricter judgment, knowing that those who are called to lead, who are called to guard and care for souls, someday will give an account for their leadership, as the writer of the Hebrews tells us. And that's why we took very seriously what Paul has already delineated quite precisely in chapter 3 when it deals with the qualifications of an elder. Timothy, don't be hasty. To listen again to today's message in its entirety, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting Part 2 of Caring for Members in God's Church. It's Message 1TM12. Tomorrow, Dr. Brugge's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our look at the way elders are to be treated as we search the scriptures. <music>